Welcome to Sharpen, a series from the Alpha Psi chapter of Beta Upsilon Chi. Sharpen is a leadership development program designed to help grow and empower Christian men to become faithful leaders in their organizations, families, and workplaces. Let's get started. Welcome back. This is our sixth and final episode of Sharpen. This week will be a little bit different from our previous five in that the last few weeks we've been exploring different leadership principles that great leaders embody and then applying that to us. This week we're going to be taking all five weeks together and doing a sort of capstone episode, applying them all to the example that we find of Jesus Christ in the Gospels. So I'm not joined by any guests this week. I'll be just walking week by week of what we've been talking about and showing how each of these are fully embodied by Jesus. So Hebrews 2.10 describes Jesus as a perfect leader. He is the total example and embodiment of all these traits. And there's a lot that we can learn from how he lived his life in the Gospels uh, of what it looks like to be a leader. So like I said, we'll be walking week by week and looking at each of these individually uh, and using a lot of scripture to support all of this. So the first is week one, know thyself. Great leaders are secure in themselves and emotionally intelligent. One of the very first things that we see of Jesus's ministry right after he's baptized, this is Matthew 3, 17, a voice is heard from heaven that said, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. So this is really significant for a few reasons. The first, of course, is that it affirms uh, Jesus's deity Uh, from God speaking it from heaven. This is right after Jesus's baptism by John the Baptist, when the Holy Spirit descends on him. Uh, But aside from that, it's also significant because we see that the Father speaks into the Son his identity, kind of speaks this blessing over him. And it's before Jesus even does any of his ministry. So we can say that Jesus's identity, and by extension, our identity, is not attached to anything that we do or accomplish, simply because he loves us as his children, and we've accepted that, uh, that, that free gift. And so this is really huge that uh, Jesus and ourselves are to live from this place of love and acceptance and not for love and acceptance. So right from the beginning, Jesus's identity is made secure. He's then able to operate from that place. We also know that Jesus himself was very aware of who he was. So there are seven I am statements throughout John. The fact that there's seven of them also is significant. Uh, And these statements are that Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the true vine. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the gate. I am the resurrection and the life. And I am the light of the world. Jesus was laser focused on his own identity and his purpose. He was uh, very socially aware as well. He knew how to channel all of his masculine energy perfectly. Uh, And so this means that, you know, he knew when to be kind and when to be tough. I think of the image of him flipping over the tables in the temple of the money changers out of righteous anger. And then at the same time, um, holding that against him with children, crawling over him and, and just being so good with kids. So he's able to do those each in perfect measure. He also knew when to be shrewd and when to be silent. So when speaking with the religious elite, um, these are people who were trying to essentially trap him a lot of times with the questions they asked 
and he knew exactly how to respond well, how to even turn their questions back onto them. So he's very quick-witted, almost sarcastic at times, and just very brilliant. He carried himself very well. Uh, but then at the same time, he knew when to be silent, uh, uh, him being in front of Pontius Pilate and not you know, fighting back when he, he easily could have. Uh, so Jesus knew how to exercise all of that well, uh, how to be emotionally intelligent, how to be very secure in himself. The second week, we talked about own it, that great leaders innovate and inspire. And man, was Jesus inspiring. He inspired people to give up everything that they had, and uh, you know, people would leave behind all of their wealth and their power. They would leave behind their families and their livelihood. They faced humiliation and persecution and even death. And these people did so willingly and happily. So we know that Jesus uh, was extremely inspiring in this way. And at the same time, he really expected nothing less than that. So in Luke 14, we read that there's this large crowd that's following Jesus as he's going from town to town. And you know, you could maybe say in the modern church, like we would look at that large crowd and be like, hey, doing something right, Jesus. You got a large crowd behind you. Uh, but what Jesus says is he turns around to this crowd and he says to them, he says, if you want to be my disciple, you must, by comparison, hate everyone else, your father and mother, your wife, your children, your brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple." I'm sure the crowd thinned out a little bit after that talk. Uh, but the thing is, Jesus was not ultimately concerned about numbers and attendance. He wanted people who were 100% in. So he flipped the script on what it meant to be you know, religious, so to speak. Uh, and he flipped the script on a lot of what was accepted at the time of what was right. And so, you know, in Matthew 5, he says, you have heard that it was said this, but I tell you this. This happens a couple of times in this chapter. So when he does this with adultery, he said, you've heard that it was said, you must not commit adultery. But I tell you that even if you looked lustfully at a woman, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. You've heard it said that thou shalt not commit murder. But even if you're angry with a brother, uh, you know, if you insult someone with hate in your heart uh, or, you know, hold something against them, then you've essentially murdered them in your heart. You've done essentially the same thing. And so this kind of goes back to God's upside down economy. Jesus raised the bar of holiness and he said that, you know, thou shalt be first who is last uh, and was really willing to innovate on what was accepted at the time. The third week we talked about eat last, that great leaders uh, know that to lead means to serve. Jesus was, of course, an incredible servant leader you know, this happens in Matthew 20, James and John's mother comes to Jesus and essentially asks for them to be put at his left and right hand in the afterlife. And, you know, Jesus replies, you don't know what you're asking. Can they drink from this cup of suffering that I'm going to be drinking from? He describes to them that the first shall be last again, and that the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And then in Philippians 2, 5 through 7, we read that uh, what Paul's instructing the church of Philippi, he says, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges and he took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. Again, with the idea of uh, servant leadership, Jesus even washes his disciples' feet 
in John 13, this incredible act of putting himself even below his people, doing something that was quite honestly kind of gross <laughs> and something that would be reserved for you know the servant, the actual slave of the house, or at least the host. Jesus really understood what it means to serve. He understood stewardship as well. I, I think of the end of John, John 21, where Jesus is speaking with Peter, and he has this back and forth where he asks Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He replies, yes, Lord, I love you. And he says, well, then take care of my sheep. And this happens three times. It's kind of like an unfolding of the three times that Peter denies Jesus. But the premise here is that leadership in Jesus's eyes is this idea of taking care of your people, protecting and feeding your people. And, you know, even as the son of God himself, Jesus understood what stewardship was. So he's totally detached from material possessions, detached from comfort. I mean, he did not have anywhere to lay his head. He was essentially homeless, or you could say couch surfing. Um, I mean, Luke 9, I believe it's Luke 9, 58, where he says foxes and foxes have dens to live in and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place even to lie his head. So total detachment. Um, being able to recognize that everything that he has ultimately comes from the Father, even as he himself is the Son of God. Our fourth week was above reproach that great leaders live with unquestionable integrity. Now, this one's fairly straightforward in the sense that it's kind of baked into our theology that Jesus is sinless uh, and that he did have unquestionable integrity. Um, that's pretty essential for him to be the Son of God. But, I mean, we read, you know, in Hebrews 4.15 that this high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all the same things we do, yet he did not sin. We know that Jesus faced temptation and was successfully able to not sin. Um, So in Matthew 4, we get an example of this where Jesus, uh, after his baptism, he's out in the wilderness and he's tempted by Satan. And Jesus's first response to all this was with Scripture. He quickly responded, giving back scripture as his, as his defense, as his weapon. So that's definitely something that we can learn from ourselves. And then the fifth and final week was grow and empower. Great leaders see and develop potential. Jesus himself, he was the perfect discipler and mentor. So he knew what it meant to disciple. Of course, he had the 12 disciples and then a much larger crowd beyond that. But he was very intentional on building those relationships, on building up the people that were with him. You know, many, if not all of his miracles and parables, they all act as teaching moments for the disciples. So you could think of the feeding of the 5,000, where uh, there's this large crowd who needs fed and they don't have food to feed anyone. And so they suggest, well, you know, maybe we send them to the market, but we can't afford all this. And you know, Jesus could have easily just snapped his fingers and everyone would have food. But what he does is kind of ask the disciples like, well, you know, what do you think we should do? And instructs them to break people up into groups and find someone with food. Uh, And so he brings them in on this process. There's many examples, too, of Jesus explaining his parables very clearly to his disciples because he wants them to grow. He wants them to understand and be able to follow what's happening. He also gives them opportunities to learn and to fail. Um, so, you know, Peter walking out onto the water and then, and then falling in. Uh, Jesus foreknew that would happen, and he still allows him to have this moment of failure. Uh, and again, with the denying Jesus later on, uh, he's willing to give them opportunities to grow, to learn, and to fail. 
there's also this final point of Jesus uh, giving like these, these nicknames or, or renaming some of his disciples. So names in the Hebrew culture had a lot more significance than what we would think, but uh, essentially like a, speaking a blessing over these people. And so he does this with Peter, um, you know, Simon, he names him Cephas, uh, which means, you know, little rock. And then says, upon this rock, I will build my church. And this, in a way, is sort of a play on Peter's personality, which throughout the scriptures, we see that Peter is someone who is, you know, a bit a bit dense, a bit stubborn, kind of uh, boastful, and even doubtful at times. Uh, you can almost even say he's got like a head full of rocks. Uh, and so Jesus knows this and, and loves Peter a lot uh, and is making almost a play, I think, here. Uh, be saying, you know, on you, you know, on this rock, uh, on the rock of you saying that I am the Christ, this is where the foundation of my church will be. Uh, so he's willing to turn what could be this negative quality and really speak life into Peter. He also does this with uh, James and John, sons of Zebedee. He names them Bonerges, which uh, is a Greek for sons of thunder, which is a pretty cool nickname. Uh, and again, throughout the Gospels, we see James and John as being you know, pretty noisy, rowdy, um, kind of quarrelsome. Uh, they may have even like had a temper, you know. And also the disciples were pretty young. Uh, we don't always realize this, but the disciples were teenagers. So I just think of these like two pretty rambunctious teenagers who are butting heads. They're brothers. Um, and... This could have been fairly obnoxious, honestly, for Jesus. He's a grown man. He's like having to put up with these uh, kids who are always roughhousing. <laughs> um, but Jesus looks at this and he sees potential. He sees these are men who can be men of power. Uh, and so he gives them this name, these sons of thunder, uh, and speaks this, this new name into them. And this is what Jesus does for us. He sees the good in us and he calls it out. He gives us a new name the new life, the new purpose. So these are all of the ways that Jesus has really lived these leadership principles. These are ways that we can then follow in his footsteps to become faithful leaders. This is ultimately the point I want to leave you on because we can talk about leadership for hours and hours, but the final point I want to make is that to be great leaders, we must first be followers of the perfect leader. Thank you. Appreciate you following along and hopefully this was helpful and God bless.